Hi, and welcome to Your Own Podcast, podcast for the Ontario Animal Health Network. Uh, our tagline is Quick and Handy Tips for Vets on the Go. I'm Dr. Melanie Barham, uh, coordinator for the program, and I'm joined today by Dr. Nathan Slovis, who's the director of um, of the medical department at Haggerty Equine Medical Center, an internist, and really doesn't need a whole lot of introduction because he's pretty well known. Today we're going to be talking about Lasonia um, and proliferative enteropathy. So we're going to be doing a kind of a functional review and also kind of an update on any new um, any new uh, modalities and new treatment uh, treatments and diagnostics. Thanks for joining us, Nathan. Hey, you're more than welcome. Thanks for having me, Melanie. So can you provide a brief description of how uh, equine proliferative enteropathy due to Lastonia infection kind of manifests? Sure. Well, let's talk about the organism first because we need to understand that it is an obligate intracellular bacterium. And if you really want to get down to details, it's a gram-negative bacterium. But unlike gram-negative bacterium, you know, uh, the use of some of the antibiotics we're going to be talking about don't really cover most of your gram-negative bacteria. So it's interesting that yet there's a gram-negative bacteria, but yet we use antimicrobials that are really more specifically for gram-positive infections. We'll talk about that towards the end when we talk about treatments. But when we talk about Lawsonia, we tend to think of proliferative enteropathy in pig production. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would say in the last decade or so, we get a lot more attention, maybe even two decades now, a lot more attention on equine proliferative enteropathy, also known as Lawsonia intracellularis infection in horses. And what it does, interesting about it, it ends up invading the crypt cells, so to speak, in the intestine, and it's pri- primarily your small intestine. And what that does, these crypt, they contain enterocytes that are really active, mitotically active. They sort of replace the cells in the mucosa. But what ends up happening, it infects these crypt cells, and it sort of turns them on, and they start getting hyperplasia, proliferating. And these crypt cells are, as I said, are responsible for replacing some of the enterocytes in the mucosa. And when they start to proliferate, when they start to um, overpopulate, what ends up happening, they're pretty much immature cells. And what happens is immature cells, they, ha- they have the capability for secretion. They don't have microvilli. So therefore, they replace the mature epithelial cells lying the intestinal tract. And when that happens, if they're secretory, they don't have the microvilli. What surface? You need the microvilli to have a surface area to for proper absorption of, of nutrients. If you don't have the microvilli, you get a poor absorption of nutrients. You get a malabsorptive disease. You're going to have a hypersecretion. So these cells are secrete protein. It can they can also secrete um, different uh, electrolytes. So these animals become hyperproteinemic. They'll end up getting some electrolyte abnormalities at times, and it's really severe. And that's sort of, in a nutshell, how it sort of manifests. And that's what it does at the microscopic level. And at the clinical level, these animals, when they lose their protein, they start becoming lethargic because their oncotic pressures decrease. Right. And, you know, if you've got decreased oncotic pressure, it's like you're having low blood pressure you know, in simplistic terms, and you just feel kind of dull out of it. Okay, perfect. Uh, that's a great review. 
Um, now, what are the recommended methods of diagnosis and treatment? Current. At the moment, uh, the recommended way for diagnosis, and this is what I recommend, and most of what my colleagues would would agree, is that the best way to do it is with a PCR and serology. And the PCR, what that does is just write off the uh, fecal sample. And with PCR, it just literally detects the bacteria-specific DNA. The problem is, just like with salmonella and other infectious diseases, the horses may just intermittently shed the bacterium in their feces. So if you do it one day, you may miss it. You do it the next day, you may catch it. And that's why we do it with serology, because using both together increases the sensitivity and specificity of the test. And what I recommend people, especially veterinarians, when they arrive at the farm, the horse may not have feces uh, in the stall, you can take a rectal swab. Nic- Nicola Persula from UC Davis and myself did a study looking at the difference between just taking rectal swabs or plain feces and seeing if you can use uh, what's more sensitive. And they're both the same. So if worse comes to worse, you don't okay. have a fecal sample, just take a swab. And then do serological testing. I like to use what we consider a, um, they call it immunoperoxidase monolayer assay, IPMA. Okay. And it's just a ser- serological assay to give you titers. Anything greater than 1 to 60, to me, means they've been exposed. And then you got to take okay. the rest of your clinical findings to see how significant that is. Uh, but that's what I tend to use. A lot of animals that are really clinical, they're at 1 to 120 to 1 to 240 or greater. Okay. Okay. And then on our, um, as you mentioned, there would be hyperproteinemia um, on basic blood work. So if you're suspicious uh, before you're doing those diagnostics, you'd be looking for, are there any other changes that you would specifically look for on uh, CBC and, pro- and profile? Yeah, your CBC won't tell you too much. I mean, sometimes the majority of these animals will have normal white blood cell counts unless they have a severe infection, which means I mean, these animals are going to have a body score of three to three out of nine. You know, you may see changes in your white blood cell count, but the majority of these animals will have normal white blood cell count, maybe a little elevated. But what I like to do personally, I like to look at the albumin levels. Okay. And if I start seeing albumin level less than 2.6, 2.7, especially when I'm screening farms, grams per deciliter, you know, that's a red flag. You know, I, I should have Lawsonia on my differential list on an animal that's less than a year of age. Okay. And, and, okay. and that's, the key, that's the key factor because the majority of these animals that are affected, uh, I would say close to 95% of them will be between four and nine months of age. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe not quite 90%, maybe 80% to 85%, but I would say close to 95% of them will be less than a year of age. Okay. And, um, are there and other cases that are older, like what's the oldest that, oldest animal that you've had that would have, that you've pretty sure has had Lasonia? Oh, well, unfortunately, I learned it on, on a necropsy floor, unfortunately, and it was a 17-year-old stallion with chronic weight wow. loss. And, um, you know, at that time, we didn't know much about Lawsonia. We knew it affected foals, but never really thought about adults. And that animal on the necropsy floor had proliferative enteropathy, which is secondary to Lawsonia. They did scrapings of the small intestine and found Lawsonia everywhere. Oh. So we will see them. 
Now, what these animals come on in for, usually the adults, uh, they don't really have the pitting edema. We'll talk about clinical signs if, if you wish. You know, these foals, yeah. what we'll end up seeing is when the most common clinical sign, besides lethargy, is going to be pitting edema of the throat latch, submandibular area, their muzzle, uh, maybe even uh, abdominal pitting edema, scrotal pitting edema, and that's the first thing they see. So a lot of clients think, oh, boy, my horse is having an allergic reaction. Right. And then you notice the distal limbs get edematous. So that is probably the number one sign. Then you'll see fevers. Uh, these animals do get a decent uh, pyrexia. You know, we'll see it up to 105 degrees Fahrenheit. So those, so those are some of the most common clinical signs that usually that's why the, they call you on out. And weight loss, unexpected weight loss. It doesn't make any sense. And uh, but those are probably the that is probably the top clinical sign that you will see is the pitting edema. Now, unlike those foals, these adults, you know, I don't see I don't tend to see the pitting edema. I'll see them come on in because they're usually more chronic, and they'll have body score conditions of three and nine, and they've done all these different diagnostics. They try a variety of medications, uh, food changes. It's just a chronic disorder of just lethargy and weight loss. And, you know, once you rule out the most common things, tumor, um, you know, an internal infection of some sort, abscess, you know, you should, then you start to put Lawsonia on your list. Right. And that's usually what they come on out as. And unfortunately, some of these adults that are that severe, uh, sometimes you get such a severe injury of the small intestine that even though you have the diagnosis and you start treating, sometimes it's been going on so long that there's just nothing you can do. Okay. And those, uh, and again, you don't know until you try. You know, you can't just give up, but just warn the clients. Those are a little harder to treat. Okay. Um, now, moving into di- into treatment, what what are you recommending right now for treatment? Well, I recommend for treatment, if we do the diagnostic test and we have a positive and clinically they fit the Lawsonia, then what I end up doing is depending on how low the total protein is or the albumin levels are. You know, if the albumin level is sitting at 2.5 and you have a total protein of 5, you know, I do not institute colloids unless the animal is severely lethargic and depressed. And sometimes giving them the colloids, the plasma, the... Um, Veta starch. Uh, you know, sometimes it can help perk them on up. So I use the colloids. Um, it depends on the patient. I don't always just do it by the blood workup because I've had animals that had proteins down to four but that are still bright, alert. All they have is pitting edema, and I'll do more of the antimicrobials without the colloids. And antimicrobials, which I like to do in this area, is going to be the doxycycline at 10 mg per kg, or even more so what I'm having more success personally with is aminocycline, which is just like doxycycline, and I'll go that 4 mg per kg orally twice a day. And those, it's, it's uh, as better bioavailability, and that's sort of what I like to use as my first gun uh, if the animal's bright enough and alert. If they're kind of lethargic off their food, then I'll go with... Um, Oxytetracycline okay. at like 6.6 mg per kg IV, diluted in fluids usually, okay. uh, twice a day. 
for maybe three to five days, and once they start to perk up, then I change them to an oral, either minocycline or doxycycline. Okay. And okay. But, is, the feel, is the feeling that the oxytide is a little easier on them? Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they're anorexic, they're not eating well. I'm always worried about causing a uh, gastroenteropathy or enteritis and diarrhea. And not all these animals will have diarrhea. The adults will have it more than some of these foals. Uh, but some of these foals, they may have cow pie manure, but you don't get the typical profuse watery diarrhea unless it's severe, severe. And in our area, we also have some animals that don't respond to the uh, tetracycline class drugs, and I got to go with chlorophenicol. Oh, really? Okay. And, uh, yeah, so we'll go chlorophenicol with those. And, again, in Kentucky, you can use the macrolides like uh, clarithromycin mm-hmm. or azithromycin. But in our area, you know, these foals are usually 500, 700 pounds. And in our area, we tend to see more problems with GI disturbance. But I understand up in Canada, uh, you all can get away with using the macrolides in these older horses or, or bigger horses that intestinal upset. So that's something else you can use. Just in our area, it's um, it, 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 I could have more complications. Okay. But it, it, it's interesting because Connie Gephardt from Minnesota, one of the gurus when it comes to porcine proliferative enteropathy, she has just been funded by Beringer Ingelheim Vet Medica, to look at alternative antimicrobials to use for Lawsonia. And she's one of the few experts in the world that can do that. And she has an equine strain. So be on alert. She's going to be looking at metronidazole and rofloxacin and a variety of other medications um, and try to see what else we can use in our arsenal. You know, even uh, trimethoprim sulfan, just try to see is that efficacious for Lawsonia. So then next year we should know more what else we can use. Cool. That's really neat. Um, okay, excellent. So uh, the other question that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with treatment, do you recommend a particular diet for horses recovering from uh, from Lothonia infection? You know, good question. Uh, when it comes to diet, um, you know, these animals tend to be have some malabsorption issues. So I try to go something with uh, – Low starch, high fat um, type of feed. You know, almost like an equine senior or equine junior like feeds. If you're thinking like Purina, okay. uh, that's what we tend to do. And we tend to initially, when we start to treat them, we tend to take them off of any sort of concentrated feed. Just put them on good uh, hay for at least the first five days or so. We don't want to cause a gastrointestinal disturbance. Right. But then we, we start to feed them, uh, crank up the feed, and, and do sort of more of a complete feed, a heat process feed that may be a little more uh, digestible, so to speak. And okay. so, yeah, we'll we'll do that, and we definitely uh, um, you know add that to our program. Okay, and do you think second cut or first cut hay is there a difference? Do you think for for these? Uh, I you know I I don't have a strong opinion either either one. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, so if the horse is diagnosed with EPE, uh, what should the veterinarian advise about biosecurity and managing the rest of their herd? When it comes to the rest of their herd, what I would do, you don't need to isolate them in a totally different facility. We, we don't do that here in our hospital. The main thing is it's going to be a fecal-oral route um, that, that we suspect how, how these other offspring can infect their cohorts, cohorts. 
And uh, what we end up doing is, I would say for the first five to seven days, you know, when you start the antimicrobial treatments, maybe keep them isolated by themselves. But usually when you start the antimicrobials, if you're looking at PCR testing for Lawsonia and detecting their feces, once you start antimicrobials, it's amazing. They can have hot PCR in their feces, which means, a, you know, an increased number of organisms. Within 24 hours, that PCR would be next to nothing. Wow. You know, and so they, so you you would infer that they're not shedding as much. And to be cautious, that's why we say, you know, five to seven days. You may be able to get away with a couple of days. But just good hand hygiene when you're handling that animal and, and uh, mucking out the manure. You know, you may not want to use that same manure pick for your, your the other animals. You okay. know, just use it for that animal. Once it's done, disinfect that uh, pick appropriately. This animal, this animal, this bacterium is, is not resistant to routine disinfectants. Okay. You know, be, you know that, that you guys would use. It's, it's quite easily killed. Okay. And so then, where they're turned out with the rest of the where they were turned out with the rest of the herd, should that be picked over to get uh, to get the feet? the fecal matter out, or is there any concerns with uh, with those areas that the, that person may have contaminated? You know, unfortunately, um, at least in our area, we, we don't have that luxury. You have huge paddocks. If you have a small, yeah. you know, paddock, sure, yeah, pick out. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. In our area, it shows that this Lawsonia could potentially be infectious, infectious for two weeks and like 5 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, Celsius. You know, for up to two weeks, it could be infectious. So, again, more studies are needed on that. You know, if it's, 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 and unfortunately, a lot of this time, the biggest peak season where we see this in, in, in North America is going to be usually from August to about uh, October, November. So those months aren't really the heated, you know, the hot months that can easily kill this organism. It's usually the damp, cold winter months that maybe the organism can can um, sustain itself in the environment for longer. Okay. And so. would you be looking at would you be looking at testing any other horses on the farm, like do you, when you diagnose one, or or do you think? Yeah, and and, and that becomes possible, and that depends on the client what they want to invest. Um, I used to say years ago, you know, if you have one case on the farm, the chance of you having an outbreak is slim to none. Uh, but I sure changed my thoughts on that because when we get one, it's not uncommon to see two or three more. I've yet to see a herd that, except there's one in California, but it's very rare to see a herd that you may have ten foals out together and all ten get clinical. You know, I, I, just, I just don't see that. You know, usually you, you may have a prevalence of ten to twenty percent, and that's when the client needs to, uh, you know, put the pencil to it. But if the client wants to do everything possible, then what I recommend is temperatures. Because usually these Lawsonia cases, at least on the endemic farms that I deal with, they'll spike a fever uh, usually three to five days before they get clinical. So we'll see some okay. fevers. So if you have a fever on an endemic farm, you may want to uh, tell your veterinarian or the owner tells the veterinarian they can do further investigating. Now, what's further investigating? Um, you can do serology testing and look for um, titers. And if you have a titer greater than uh, 60, you know, 1 to 60, then that just means that animals have been exposed. It doesn't mean it's going to get sick. It, it just tells you, hey, he's been exposed. If he's, if it uh, is starting to have fevers, maybe you want to think about Lawsonia. 
Um, so just do it tighter alone. Just gives you an idea what the uh, exposure is. Okay. Uh, some clients want to do that along with uh, looking at total proteins, total solids. And what I do now on my farms, because a lot of my farms are vaccinating, and we'll, we'll get back on that. What I'll do in farms to monitor it, I monitor more with the albumin levels. Okay. And um, so we'll take twice a month albumin levels on endemic farms. And if anything goes less than 2.7, then I start investigating further. Okay. You know, I, I do serology. I may come out to do a physical exam. Um, some farms don't want to invest with, it, uh, with albumin levels. And some farmers want to do it themselves, so they'll literally get a refractometer, right. and they'll pull their own blood. You know, in Kentucky, people do that, and, and they can and pull their own blood and evaluate the total protein with a refractometer, and they'll use anything less than five. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty low cost. Like it's oh, cost, it's, right? it's super low cost. You can buy a refractometer for 250 yeah. bucks, and then spin down the blood yourself. But, again, you got to have farm help or manager that, that knows yeah. how to draw blood, et cetera, et cetera, and, and that's what we have in this area. So that's what I tend to use. I'll probably do, you know, albumin levels more so than the total protein because I'll see foals that are normal that have total proteins of five. And, uh, you know, I think a total protein of five, that's below normal range, you know, uh, depending on your lab. But you're talking a total protein level of uh you know, five grams per deciliter. I'll see normal foals with that, clinically normal. Um, so that's why I tend to use the albumin more to be a little more specific. So I'm not treating everything on the farm. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Um, now you mentioned endemic farms. Um, so when when you have um, EP diagnosed on a property, is there a higher likelihood of additional cases that year, or or just kind of forever, or what 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 kind of uh, how does that show up in the cases that you've treated? Yeah, the treat cases that I've treated, if I get an endemic farm, I mean, it's greater than 10%, and I'll have some farms up to 20%. If it gets that high, then uh, I tend to watch them. And if I have two years in a row it gets that high, then I consider that an endemic farm. And what I mean is animals coming into the hospital, I have to treat, you know, what have you. And then that's when we start getting ag aggressive with uh, prevention. Because uh, just because you have Lawsonia, I've had clients that, boy, I've never had Lawsonia. They have one case and they never have another case. Okay. You know? And unfortunately, we just don't know the epidemiology behind it. We don't know what the vector is or the animal that, that transmits it. We know horses can potentially infect horses with studies that done at UC Davis and had um, – an infected horse in the same stall as a non-infected horse, you know, experimentally infected. Mm. And then the uh, non-infected horse will seroconvert, which means they've been exposed. doesn't mean they're going to get sick. It just means they've been exposed. So that is a, a potential way of, of getting it. Uh, rabbits, they've suspected. Uh, they've infected uh, horses with a rabbit strain of Lawsonia, and they've gotten ill. But, again, a lot of these strains are species-specific, but there are some crossover. A, a porcine strain is really hard to infect a horse unless you end up – when they were trying to do experiments before, they had to give these horses large, large doses of dexamethasone, these foal, these weanlings, to make them immunocompromised so they can infect them with a porcine strain. And when they did, these horses didn't get that sick. And um, 
So unless you're a geriatric cushionoid horse, maybe you can get the porcine strain. But a lot of these animals, um, there's another um, wild animal out there that may spread it, and we just we just haven't figured it on out. I, trust me, I've looked. I know Nicola Persula looked. I've looked at cockroaches. I've looked at um, and sent all these samples to Nicola, so Nicola Persula from UC Davis. Yeah. But I've looked at cockroaches, grasshoppers. Uh, we uh, looked at a variety of different fecal samples. Alan Page was one of my uh, our fellows at the time that now has a Ph.D. in studying Lawsonia, and he got started here at Haggard's. And we put out cameras everywhere collecting feces. If we didn't know what kind of feces it was, we sent the feces off to a parasitologist that would look at parasites in the feces and go, oh, this is from a fox, this is from a coyote, wow. what have you. And then... Um, we sampled everything, turkeys, uh, geese, uh, I mean, m- mice, rats, you know, looking. Right. And, and, and we just couldn't find them that had a molecular structure of similar to the equine strain. Uh, again, raccoons have a lot of it, but it wasn't the same molecular structure as the horse, so we couldn't, we couldn't use that as the victim. Or possums, we couldn't find it. Again, I got plenty of pictures of Shona's collecting all these different samples. So I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, the only one that's come close has been rabbits, so maybe rabbits are a source. And uh, there's been some studies on that also. Okay. But okay. we definitely know horses appear to to do it. Maybe we've got subclinical shedders out there. But why is it only during a certain month, time of year in North America? You know, why is that? Because is the foal's immunity decreasing? Is it the time of weaning that they're stressed and more susceptible? Yeah. Um, you know, adults, it's very rare. But I've gone out and bled horses on properties because there have been times that they've had an, an outbreak in a field. When I mean an outbreak, in one of my farms, you see we had 10 foals in a the field. They had three foals clinically affected. The farm manager wanted to transfer those horses, foals, to another field. And I said, well, hold on. Before you do that, Let's just bleed the mares in that other field that you want to change them to. Yeah. And, and let's see if they've been exposed. Well, guess what? Every mare in that field had a high titer. So they were really? exposed. So, uh, you know, the question was, was it really worth, you know, moving those animals to a different part of the farm? Right. And, and what, and what I, when I saw that what the mares were, had for titers, you know, I didn't know if it was going to be a wise move or not, or it was really going to do anything. So, yeah, it's uh, like a lot, of, a lot of extra work and maybe not a lot of payoff for that. So it, it, how frustrating it, it, for the client, too. Exactly. So that's when it just comes. You know, you can try to move the pastures, um, but again, just remember, your other pastures could be have some areas that are affected, and we don't know why. Okay. Um, so, kind of on that uh, on that same note, are there um, are there some individual and farm risk factors? Uh, that you believe are, are will you know would be more likely to get an, an infection for Lithonia or set up an endemic situation. What's unfortunate is the best practices when it comes to husbandry and density. I'll find some of the worst problems on, and then some of the farms that have the worst husbandry, I don't have any issues. And then vice versa, right. some of the some of the most you know farms that have you know ten folds per acre. You know, some of those farms don't have anything, as I said. Some of them are just as bad as the good husbandry. So I, do, I don't have a per se right there to tell you what leads it. I really think stock density is a key, um, but I, I don't know anything specifically you could try to prevent. 
other than um, you know some of these farms that had endemic issues, they would feed their animals on the ground outside because they didn't like to bring them in. So maybe that allows the wildlife to come on in and feed whatever remaining grain particles are in that area, you know, on the ground. Maybe that maybe that brings the the vectors in there. But again, that's pure speculation. I've nothing to prove it. But these are just some of the things I've seen on on farms that've had you know issues. Okay, so thank you very much, Dr. Slovis. So we're going to uh, we're going to pick right up where we left off next week, and we'll be um, we'll be discussing some uh, risk factors in the United States um, and endemic areas there, as well as the vaccine and hyperimmune serum. Um, so make sure you tune in next time for our uh, second installment of this podcast on Lithonium. Thanks very much, Nathan. You're welcome. Thank you.